Well, if you would, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 is where we're going to start off this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 6. And as you're turning there, we've been talking for the last uh, couple months, going through the book of 1 Timothy, on being a faithful minister. The things that Paul was teaching young Timothy as he was becoming a strong minister for the Lord. And uh, so as we get started, we're really in, I think, the eighth part, or eighth message in this series under being a faithful minister uh, today. And uh, we're going to be talking about false teaching and false doctrines and so forth this morning. So let's have a word of prayer as we get started this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here in your house this morning. I ask God that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, as we've already prayed, God, that we would have a clear understanding of what the scripture is all about and what, what he's trying to teach Timothy as he begins his uh, ministry as a young preacher of the faith. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would apply these things to our own hearts and our own lives, Lord, that we would hear from the knowledge of your word, that we might be in good standing with you concerning our actions and reactions, Lord, as ministers for you, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you recall, Paul began this letter back in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1 and verse 3 uh, with an exhortation to instruct people to not teach false doctrine. In fact, it says, "I urged you when you when you when you went, or urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, and so forth." So he, right away from the beginning, he said, "I want you to stay here. I want you to teach people." so that they might know truth from air, so that they would not teach false doctrine. Uh, so we know that this was something very important to, to Paul, and it's something that he felt Timothy needed to learn and understand as he was starting his earthly ministry. And so it's also very important, that uh, a task that we follow, uh, because we know that false teaching can creep into, creep into a lot of churches very subtly. Uh, in, fact, in fact, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, it says this, uh, just back in Acts chapter 20, it says, verse 20, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. It's amazing. He says, you're to be on guard. It is my job as a pastor, as a shepherd of this flock, to be on guard so that no false doctrine enters into this body, right? So he says, be on guard. Be looking for it. Make sure it doesn't creep in. And there have been times where I've had to stand up and talk to somebody in private and say, listen, you can't teach that. Bottom line is, this is what we believe the Word of God to, to mean and to, to how we understand and know it, and that doesn't fall in line with it, so we have to shut it down. And sometimes people say, hey, I understand it, I just didn't know, I misunderstood it, it was miscommunicated, that's not really what I meant. And sometimes they get mad and leave. But the reality is, it's one of my jobs as a pastor is to make sure that we stay true as possible to the Word of God and what we know it to, to mean and understand it. So he also goes to verse 29, he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Why? There's always going to be somebody who wants to step in line without going through the work, without going through the, the, uh, the, the training to be the leader of something that they did not, they were not called to be the leader of. Uh, this happened in Tippecanoe when I was there. I had several retired pastors that all wanted the job all of a sudden. And it was just like, you know, I had, I had one guy sit there and tell me, he says, you know, you're doing communion all wrong. I said, really? I said, well, what am I doing wrong? 
He says, well, the chairman of the board is supposed to stand right here. The second in line stands right here. And then if there are others, they go on this side and then this side, alternating according to their terms. And I said, well, okay, but can you show me a chapter and verse of where the deacons are supposed to stand in doing communion? Don't get smart with me, young man. I'm like, I'm not trying to get smart. I just, you're telling me I'm doing it wrong, but I don't see scripture for that. Everybody's going to do things differently, right? But there are times when you say, well, wait a minute, what's your motive and your, what, what, what is the incentive behind telling me this? Because they wanted to prove the point that I was doing things wrong as a brand new pastor. And uh, sometimes you got to say, wait a minute, where's this in scripture? Where's the, where's this truth coming from? It says, men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. And that's exactly what they were trying to do. It was just a little thing, but yet they were trying to get people on their side, quote unquote. And there are people who will do that because they have an, uh, a vendetta. They, have a, they want a desire, have an ulterior motive. They want your position. They want your, your place. They want your recognition or whatever it is. But the reality is it does happen. And it says, therefore, be alert. Remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. He says, listen, I have prayed for you over and over for years and years that this would not happen to you. Then verse 32 says, and now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. In other words, all those that are set apart, all those who are made holy, all those who are are part of this body. So as we look at this chapter in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to see characteristics of what false teachers are. And so what are the characteristics of false teacher? Well, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, let me read verses, beginning verses 3 through 10. Actually, the end of, middle of verse 2 is actually, actually where I'm going to pick up here. It says, teach and encourage these things. Verse 3, if anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So we see several characteristics here of false teachers. And number one, they do not agree or adhere to the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there are all kinds of truths out there, or, or teachings out there. Let me say it that way. There are all kinds of teachings out there, and not all of it is truth. Sometimes we have the idea that, well, they're on TV, they must be right. Or they've written a book, they must be right. They have a large radio audience, they must be teaching the truth. But if we're not careful, those things creep in and can distort our view of what the truth really is. So we really do need to be like the Bereans, as, as we were taught in Scripture, to search the Scriptures to see if what is said is the truth. See if it's what is said is so. So we need to be students of the Word. In fact, that's what God's Word encourages us to do and to be in 2 Timothy 2.15, to study thyself uh, approved unto God, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. We should be students of the Word of God ourselves in our own lives, Right? 
So not just to take what pastor says as face value. We're going to do the best we can to stay as close to the truth as we can. We're going to pray that God works through us and teaches through us and that his word is clear. But you need to be a student of the word as well so that you understand what God's word is. So teaching that agrees with the Lord Jesus Christ promotes godliness. So verse 3, it says they don't adhere to it, but true teaching will adhere to godliness. So when you hear the word of God, what does it do in your life? What does it do for you as a person who claims to be a child of Jesus Christ? Does it draw you closer to the word? Does it make you want to learn more of the word? Does it have an impact on your life? Does it promote godliness in your life? If it doesn't promote godliness, there's something wrong with it. If it promotes something other than godliness, it may not be the truth. So teaching that agrees with the Lord Jesus Christ does promote godliness according to this text. Then says they, false teachers, are proud and conceited and know nothing, according to verse 4. So it says, he is conceited and understands nothing. And this is a really an interesting phrase in the Greek, in the Greek language here. Um, it literally means it's a fixed state or position. In other words, he, he is, it's a passive tense that he's literally like he knows nothing. He just is in this state where he's just, bleh. he knows nothing. He thinks he knows something, but he doesn't know anything. And so a false teacher is puffed up with a lot of information, but it's not the information that can change lives because it's not based on the truth of God's word. So literally, it's a fixed state or position. A true minister will have a burning heart for truth. You know, I was looking at this in Luke chapter uh, 24. If you have your Bibles, turn there just for a moment. It's a good verse to underline. If you're in a place of ministry or you get an opportunity to speak and to teach and you consider yourself a minister of the Lord, and I know many of you do, in Luke chapter 24 and verse 32, oops, I'm in 23, 24, verse 32, it says, They said to each other, Weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us? on the road, and explaining the scriptures to us. Isn't that an interesting verse? He says, like, our hearts were on fire. Our hearts were burning. Why? Because Jesus Christ was talking to them and teaching them and instructing them, and it was grabbing their hearts, and they wanted to learn more of it. It challenged them. It excited them. It burned within them. See, a true, I don't know, I'm just going to say it. I was a little bit weird as a junior hire. Some of you say, well, I probably could figure that out. But I would remember sitting in my bedroom in eighth grade reading Matthew Henry's commentary as an eighth grader. That's not normal. That's weird. But I remember being challenged because I surrendered my life to God, and I remember saying, God, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. And, and all of a sudden there's this desire to, to learn and to grow. And, and, and then my youth pastor comes up to me and he says, hey, Ken, do you really believe that God's called you to preach? I said, absolutely. He goes, are you sure of it? I said, absolutely. He goes, good, you're going to start. I'm like, thank you. Um, not really. So eighth grade, he's like, you better start learning and start growing and take every opportunity God gives you. And it's like, okay. I didn't really know what that meant, but all I knew is I started gathering books and gathering books, and I'm still gathering books and trying to learn and to grow because it's, when God gets a hold of your heart and you're learning what Jesus has to say, it creates a burning desire to know more. And if you haven't been grabbed by that, if you have not been captivated by that, you've got to ask why. 
There should be a desire within us to grow, especially when the Word of God is going forth, that it grabs us, and we want to learn more of it, and we want to apply it to our hearts and our lives. These false teachers were so proud and conceited, they, they really knew nothing. But a true minister will have a burning heart for truth. And not having this wisdom, they tend to have an unhealthy interest. And this is an interesting word here, in disputes and arguments. In the Greek here, it's the word nosone, has the idea of being mentally sick. Let's, let's read that again. Verse 4 says, He is conceited and understands nothing, but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments. That unhealthy interest, it literally means that there's almost like a mental illness. If anybody loves to argue, there's something wrong with them innately, right? I mean, does anybody just love to argue? I mean, we all know that person, right? They're always right. They're never wrong. They have all the answers. And whatever answers you have, they're not as good as his answers. We all know that one person. But in the Greek language, it literally has the idea of being mentally sick. Because they love to dispute. They love to argue. And they're not arguing truth. They're arguing opinion. They're arguing preference. They're arguing what they think is right that is literally not right. Nason, the idea of being mentally sick because they enjoy disputes and arguments and they really have no character. So this goes on and then at the end of verse 4 it says, from these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth. Interesting thing here, five things he says is a result of this mental illness of wanting to argue and debate everything, senseless stuff. Envy. You know what envy is? Envy is wanting what others have. I'm going to argue my point so that I can have what other people have. I deserve it. I want it. I should have it. Because in the context of what we're seeing in this scripture, is something quite different than what I was taught growing up. But it literally has the idea of ministers being content, but they weren't being content. They were using their position as a minister of Jesus Christ to gain more and more and more. And so this idea of envy is what results as their, uh, of this worthless arguing and disputing that's taken place. So it's an idea that with this envy, they want what others have. Number two, quarreling. This is useless arguing with others. It doesn't matter really what we're, you know, if, if, if I say it's snowing outside, you say, no, it's just raining. Well, it's gray outside. No, it's, it, it's, it's blue. They just have an opposite view just because they want to have an opposite view. They just like to argue over, over vain, useless information. They have to be right. We all know that person. Remember what Mark Lowry said? I may not be right, but I ain't never in doubt. <laughs> Referring to Baptists. You know, may not be right, but we ain't never in doubt. Because we have to be right, some of us. And if we're not right, we're going to argue our point to at least you know what I really believe. And sometimes we know what you believe without really arguing it because you just make it plain and simple. And then there's slander. Slander is another result of this useless arguing. Slander. You know, slander is lying about other people. Lying about circumstances. You know what a half-truth is? It's a whole lie. A half-truth is a whole lie. You know what exaggeration is? Lying. So when we exaggerate about people or we embellish the truth about somebody, which is really not the truth, 
when we make things look differently than what they really were, it's really slander. We're lying about things. We're lying about circumstances. Lying about people. Lying about what really took place. So he says, slander is a result of this not knowing the truth. Then he goes into evil suspicion. Well, you ever met the conspiracist theory person? Everybody's always out to get me. This suspicion that there's unhealthy thoughts of people around you being against you. They must not like me. And so we start forming a wall against them because we have this in our mind that somehow they don't like us. Don't really talk to them. We don't really spend time with them. We really don't know that much. But but they're, they're against me somehow. They're against me. That's evil suspicion. It has the idea that there are people against me that really aren't. But we think they are. But see, that's where our focus is where? Me, myself, and I, all three of us, right? We think everybody's against us. Everyone's against me. And they're really not. But you think they are because your mind is not on God. False teachers, that is. And then all of these create a constant disagreement. In fact, it literally means a friction. It's a constant friction. It's that sandpaper against something. There's no, nothing smooth and gliding about it. There's no grease and lubrication. It's friction. And it's constant. And it never stops. And you know what friction does? Creates heat. You know what heat does? Burns. It creates this atmosphere where people are not at rest. See, false teachers, when they're not in the truth, they cause a lot of havoc. So, they're depraved and deprived of the truth. Leading to the thought that people desirous of material gain. Think about this. Verse 5. It says, In constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. Imagine this. I mean, think about this. These are false teachers who have a position or a platform by which they speak and influence people. Not that their influence is a good influence, not that they're speaking truth, but nonetheless, they have an audience. And they're false teachers. And somehow they've got it in their minds that because of my position, because of what I do, I should be well compensated for it. I deserve material wealth. I deserve financial gain. I deserve everything that I can get. Have we heard this in recent years? I mean, there are pastors on TV, once again, on a regular basis, that teach this. God doesn't want you to be poor. And if you're walking with God, He'll bless you. And the blessing that we've interpreted to mean is that we're going to have you very, very, very wealthy. That's not what God's Word says. These are false teachers who promote a gospel that only enhances themselves. See, these are people desirous of material gain. They've come to the idea that this false sense of truth, this false godliness, somehow leads to material gain. I've never been one in my 25 years of preaching to name names, but I'm going to this morning. I just think of what's going on in the news, in the the headlines, in the Facebook articles. Jesse Duplantis. I need another $57 million jet to do the work of the Lord. 
$57 million? Well, you got three other jets. Why don't you sell one of those and use those, those funds to buy another one? No, 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 no. I need one in addition to those. How many planes can you get on at once? Kenneth Copeland Ministries. He's got like six jets. He's got his own personal air, air runway in his backyard of his mansion. How many planes can you fly at once? How many millions of dollars do you really need to invest in airplanes to do the work of the ministry? I think of Joel Osteen, $10 million mansion. How, how big is big enough? How many houses are enough? How much of a big a bank account is enough? Well, they're on TV. They must be preaching truth. They're on the radio. They've written books. They must be God's man. Hogwash. I think there's a, there is a position with these false teachers that they use their platform with the audience that they have to promote themselves. Watch the shows. I used to, I mean, I don't know what it is. I can't stand some of these TV preachers, but there's just something about them that when you're flipping through the channels, you've got to watch for a minute. Is anybody else like that? I mean, you know you don't like them. You know you don't agree with them, but there's just something captivating you've got to watch for a minute. I mean, it's just, really, am I the only one? It's just, it's just crazy. You walk through Walmart, and Joyce Myers has got 27 titles on the shelf at one time. I'm thinking, good Lord, how much is enough? And these folks, I'm telling you, are false teachers. They're exactly what this scripture is talking about. And we need to understand that. Because how many planes is enough? How many cars are enough? How many houses are enough? They actually use this false piousness, religiousness for financial gain. And by the way, can I just say this honestly? This is not what we were talking about two weeks ago. This is not what, when, when, when Scripture, and specifically in 1 Timothy chapter 5, when it talks about pastors being worthy of double honor, they're worthy of the compensation and, and, and the remuneration because of their work and because of how they labor in the truth, this is not what it's referring to. This is somebody else who has got a false doctrine, a false mentality, teaching a, a false truth or false doctrine, and they're using this as a platform to gain financially, materially. So this is not what we refer to. This is a false teacher. So what is it in the correct and right context? Well, we see this beginning in verse 6. Actually, let me read the end of verse 5 one more time. It says, Who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. So false teachers imagine, they conjure up in their mind that this is what I do so that I can get for myself this financial freedom, this, this financial wealth, this material gain. But, he says, verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So this is something totally different. Godliness, true godliness with contentment is great gain. In fact, uh, the theolo theologian uh, Thayer says that contentment is a perfect condition of life in which no aid or support is needed. Wouldn't that be awesome? But we go on and see that according to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, is objectively used, meaning the sufficiency of the necessities of life. So when you couple those two together, is that if we understand what we need in this life, he says, having therefore food and raiment, let us be what? Content. So if we have what we need, and there are just a few things that are really staples of life, food, clothing, and ability to take care of our families and provide for the food and clothing of our families, 
and provide for the housing that is over us and so forth. Those are things that we should have need of. But God's Word doesn't say we need house number three. God's Word doesn't say you need $80,000 Mercedes. God's Word doesn't say that you need... Now, are those things wrong to have? No. It's wrong for those things to have you. So the reality is, he said, when you start looking at this condition of life in which no aid or support is needed, because, you know, really, I have my basic needs are met. And if my basic needs are met, I should be content. And having a sufficiency of the necessities of life. What is a necessity versus a want? Man, I can, I, I can really mix that line really good. Um, I'm good at it. Maybe you are too. But I, I, I really know how to make a necessity look like a, I mean, a want look like a necessity. Anybody, anybody else have that, that gift? All right, all three of us. We're good at it. So I've really learned, the, I, I've, I have perfected the art of making a want a necessity. I'm good at it. I think most of us are. You see, we don't need cable TV. We don't need you know, there's, we could go to Medlin here. We, could, we, we don't need a lot of the stuff we have. Just, just kind of let that sit in for a little bit. Kind of marinate a little bit. So, he says in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, Having therefore food and raiment, let us be content. So, in verse 6, he's making a point here that godliness with contentment is great gain. The gain is not from what we can get. The gain is that we have it all already. The food, the raiment, the clothing, so forth. So let me just give you a couple things. Number one, circumstances and wealth do not often produce contentment. There are a, a billion things that money can buy, but it can't buy peace. It can't buy health. It can't buy joy. There's a lot of things money can buy that are materially speaking. They're, you can fill up barns and barns and more barns. We were driving yesterday. My wife and I went for a long drive for a couple hours down towards Elmira and back. And we, we went by this one place, and it's like this little house. And out back, they had like six outhouses, like six big pole barns. And I'm thinking, all right, when's number seven coming? Um, there are people who just keep building because they just keep accumulating. How many people do we know that, well, maybe not you personally, but we know around us that one of the biggest financial investments that people are making in the last 15 years are storage units? Why? Because people have so much stuff. I mean, you got, I got a $80,000 RV that just sits in a gated RV lot somewhere, the storage unit center. We use it three times a year. I think you, and you can buy a lot of nice motels for what you pay in that RV that's sitting over there collecting dust but it's the desire to have more and to have everything. I don't want to borrow. I don't want to get used. I want my own. I want it new. That's the mentality of our culture. Buy a used vehicle. Save yourself a third. You know, but that's not within our mentality. Circumstances and wealth do not often produce contentment. Paul said, I have learned to be content in whatsoever state I'm in. It's a learned trait. We have to teach ourselves that when we go to the store, even though I want certain things, there are just certain things I don't need. Yeah, they're nice, and yeah, if it's in your ability, yeah, there's nothing wrong with having, but do we need it? We want. I, I'm guilty. 
Maybe you are as well. But we like stuff. Anybody like gadgets? I love gadgets. I love like seeing what comes out in gadgets. What's the next best gadget? I mean, I saw this thing like last fall. They have this really, really nice laptop. And it doesn't have like a metal top. It has like leather. And it's like paper thin. And it's got a Core i7 and a terabyte of memory. And it's fast. I'm like, I want that one. Well, is that one going to do any more than this one that doesn't have a leather top? And No, but that one looks cool. Right? I mean, if you like gadgets, that's cool. Remember when Palm Pilots came out? Some of you guys are no longer remember Palm Pilots. Yeah, I had to keep upgrading the Palm Pilot, get another one. Then it worked like little deals and trades with people that I knew that had a different one. We kept trading, upgrading. Those Palm Pilots didn't do a tenth of what my iPhone does. But we like gadgets. We like things. We like stuff. What, what, what's your hobby? I don't know. Whatever it is that you like. Very few of us have the idea of understanding that we don't need everything that we want. And I wonder how much more could be done for the cause of Christ if we would put some of those finances, some of those efforts of time and energy into serving the Lord rather than buying more things. But in the context of what we're talking about here, the preacher, he says, understand that contentment in itself is great gain. Not necessarily material wealth. Not necessarily finances. And then in verse 7, he tells us why. He says, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. How many times have we seen on Facebook the articles, the cartoons, nobody goes to heaven with a hearse and a trailer? Uh, it's almost humorous, but it's just so true. You know, someone asked, I can't remember if it was Rockefeller or, or uh, one of the wealthy men, wealthiest men ever lived. He said, how much did he leave behind? They were referring to his money in his bank account, and but the answer was he left all of it. Left all of it. You see, you can't take nothing with you. You didn't come in with anything, you're not going to go out with anything. And yet people fight to get and to accumulate. In verse 8, he says, and this, now by the way, it was taken from Job in chapter 1, verse 21. Come in with nothing, you leave with nothing. Verse 8, he says, So if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into a temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into the ruin and destruction. Now, remember, in the context, he's talking about false teachers wanting to be rich and using the platform and this false theology that they're teaching and this audience that they have to get, to accumulate, to get more. He says, those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap. Because how much is enough? And people will do, and people will say, and people will give, and, and they use it to just keep building, to keep building, and to keep building. And he says, there will be a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge. And the word plunge is really a, if you can picture it in your mind, it, it's, a, it's a picture, it's a word picture in this particular word. It has the idea of being out on a sea and all of a sudden the, the boat just sunk to despair, to ruin. 
It's ideas that you're floating around. You got this nice yacht, man. It's worth millions. It's gorgeous. It's got inlaid with gold and marble, and it's really nice. And it's just, you know, it's really cool. But yeah, you just sunk. You were enjoying the seas, but you just went under. That's the picture of this. What it means to plunge. So plunge them into ruin. So he says, verse ten. Says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it. Some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Once again, I've heard this context, heard this this teaching in the context of just everybody under the sun. The context really is referring to false teachers here. But practically applied, there are many people who, for the love of money, have gone into ruin and have walked away from faith. Just in the last couple weeks, I've read of more of my pastor friends who have walked away from ministry. And I, I, I mention this a lot because it's a, it's a big deal. 1,800 churches a year close, several hundred a month, uh, just in evangelical circles. Across the board, it's thousands, thousands. And a large percentage of it is because pastors are walking away wanting more. I get it. It's a unique circumstance. But every time I hear of another pastor friend who's walked away for money, and I think, ah. Oh. And the question that always comes to my mind is this. Did God uncall? Did God uncall? If God called me to ministry, and I served him for years and years and years, and all of a sudden I'm stepping out of ministry, did God uncall me? That's why I always come back to it. It's either a calling or a career choice. If it's a career choice, find something better. If you can do something else, do it. But for me, it is a calling. I know that God has called me to this, so I'm going to stay true to it because that's what God has for me. But the reality is, every time I see someone walk away, I think, oh, did God not call another one? Maybe you were never called. <laughs> Maybe the career choice didn't work out for you, so you chose something else. I don't know what the answer is. Only they and God know that answer. But I wonder. But this craving of reaching after money has caused some to wander from the faith and some to be pierced with many griefs. Many are walking away. They're walking away, and that's alarming. If they're not called, they should walk away. But if God has called, you just have to trust Him. But we're not using... We didn't enter ministry to become a multimillionaire, Right? I didn't sign up to be a pastor because I knew I was going to make it rich one day. We as pastors, Joe, our wealth is in heaven. When we walk on streets of gold, that's where the wealth is, right? But the reality is, yeah, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard at times. But God is faithful. He is. And to be pierced with many griefs, it's when we're not content and we're, and we're trying to get something that God has not established for us to have You'll never have peace with that. When you, as long as you're wrestling with that. I've been there. I, I've had those thoughts of, man, if I did something else, maybe I'd be wealthier. I have to, I, I'd be lying to say I wouldn't. Or haven't. All of us do that. I don't care what field you're in. How many of us would just want a little bit more sometimes? Let's be honest. Just a little bit more would be nice. Yeah, two hands and a foot. It'd be nice sometimes. But I come back to, what has God called me to? I come back to God is faithful. But it's when I take my eyes off Jesus 
and off my and take my trust away from him and onto myself and what I think I can do through it and the circumstance that I'm trying to fix that the grief sets in. Because I'm never there's never rest when there's grief. As long as I'm gr- grieving over the things I want and can't have, there's never rest, there's never peace, there's never a settled heart. And that's where I gotta say, I gotta get rid of that. And to focus on being what God has called me to be. And to do what God has called me to do. But the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. How many times have we seen this? Once again, go back to the TV. How many TV evangelists? How many big mega... Just think in the last year. In the last year, how many pastors have been nailed for embezzlement? They're giving us a bad name and I want to slap them. Because we're not all like them. But I want to. Because they're giving us all a bad rap. But it happens over and over when our focus is not where it needs to be. But when these false teachers come in and use the platform to teach a truth that will only better themselves, that's a false teacher. And you need to take note of them. And to not listen to them. And to not contribute. Yesterday, as I was out with my wife, we drove through forget where it's at, Lake, off Seneca Lake. There's a well-known pastor that was in this area. And uh, he had a big home for kids. And I'm just thinking, the place is empty. Yeah, I know the names. <laughs> Wasn't going to say it, but, but the, 150 acres, five dorms, two administrative buildings, six or seven houses, um, a big barns, and it's empty. Empty. Millions and millions of dollars gone into that place. And I think to myself, wow, what a waste. What a waste. I called a friend in Indiana. I said, there's 150 acres with all these buildings and all these things. I said, it'd make a great Hope Center too. He goes, let me look into it. I thought to myself, this is a waste of, of God's money. Millions of dollars. Just what he was indebted in 1990 was $21 million. His creditors got paid back 20 cents on a dollar. And I thought to myself, wow, what a shame to bring God's name through that mud and that muck. That's false teaching. That only, and the accusations while he went around, did not pay his staff, while he traveled around in nice airplanes and luxury hotels, raising money for the Lord. That's sad. That's sad. And there are good things that could have been done had you not been self-centered. And the names go on and on and on and on and on. These are false teachers, folks. Take note of them. Don't contribute to their ministries. Don't give them an ear. Last night I was laying in bed and I looked up one of his messages just from Thanksgiving Day. And I think he said please about 15 times in about 30 seconds. Please give, please give, please consider giving, please do, please. It's like, do you have any other message other than please give? Folks, don't give them an ear. Mark them, note them, 
Shy away from them. Pray for them. Because they obviously don't have truth. And how much more could be done if we would be vigilant in this area to say we are going to stand for truth, we're going to support truth, we're going to get behind truth rather than false teaching. And put our money, our time, our talents, our treasure into that so that God can use it and multiply it for use in his kingdom. There's a lot of it out there. And we have to be careful. With this, I'll close. I remember Adrian Rogers. Some of you remember Adrian Rogers on Love Worth Finding TV. Some of you, one of the one of the best pastors I've ever had the privilege of meeting in my entire life. One of the most humble men I've ever met in my life. Um, it's just amazing. But he made this comment. He says, if you're a young preacher, he says, don't ever use the ministry as a stepping stone until you can get something bigger and better. And how many times do we see that? This week I also saw several pastors who had, I looked at my wife and I said, man, it's got to be like number seven, eight in the, in the 20 years I've known them. Church number seven, church number eight, nine, somewhere in there, I don't know. I just think to myself, at what point will we be content? Let me just say, every pastor gets offers. Every pastor has an opportunity to go somewhere. Somebody will take somebody. But here's the deal. Pastors don't leave because things are perfect. Boy, you know, if everything's just wonderful, I think I'll go over there. <laughs> Pastors leave because they know what the struggle is. And this seems to be a little bit better struggle than this struggle. <laughs> but the reality is, I said, why would I go somewhere because the grass ain't greener? Number one, at least I know what the struggles are here. I know what we need to work on here. If I go somewhere else, it's going to take me three years to figure it all out again. If I stay that long. Stick to the truth. Stick to what God is going to do through using his word. Right? Don't give in to false teaching. Stand for right. Stand for truth. And I believe that that's what he'll bless eventually. It may not be what we want, but it'll be what he knows is best for us. So let's put our time, our energy, our talents, our ears, our everything behind those that are doing what's right. Behind those who are teaching truth. You know what false teachers are. He lays it out clearly. Shy away from it. Don't give them an ear. Don't give them your treasure. Don't give them your time. Because they're only using it to help themselves. Stand on this word. Let's pray.